welcome to Talking Migration. I'm Clara Sandlind and Talking Migration is supported by the Department of Politics and the Migration Research Group at the University of Sheffield. Last year, the UN Refugee Agency, the UNHCR, reported that we are living through the biggest refugee and displacement crisis of our time, even bigger than the one after the Second World War. This fact has since become almost an obligatory way to start any discussion about refugees, and it is certainly a way to signify a sense of urgency. But is it true? This and other possible misconceptions about refugees is the topic of this discussion uh, with Dr. Benjamin Thomas White, who is a refugee historian at the University of Glasgow. As is always the case with numbers, this podcast even includes a little disagreement about one of the numbers in our discussion, but that perhaps goes to show how difficult it is to present any hard facts about refugees. Before I asked Benjamin Thomas White to get down to the numbers, I asked him what he thinks is the most common misconception about refugees and to give us a bit of a historical perspective. Now, this, of course, is a really big question. Yeah. And um, also a lot more general than the other questions that you'd, uh, that you'd mentioned to me when we were talking about this. Yeah, of course. Um, misconceptions about refugees... There are the ones that are like commonly debated in the media, like the um, the confusion between the category of refugee and the category of migrant. Um, that's common enough, but it's also well discussed enough. So I don't think it adds much for me to to say anything. No, about I suppose that. I meant more from the sort of but, historical perspective. Um... Yeah, there are a couple. One. It's not so much a misconception, because misconception implies that it's just people not understanding things, and there's more going on than that. Uh, It's the idea that refugees are these passive victims waiting to be assisted. I think this is uh, common in all sorts of public discussions of refugees, and in some academic work as well. The book we were discussing earlier, um, Refuge, by Alexander Betts and Paul Collier, I think is a good example of this. Their discussion of the ethics of refugee support is all based around what they call the duty of rescue, as if refugees are people who are victims who need to be rescued. And of course, refugees are people who've rescued themselves, right? They are... Mm. They are not passive victims. They may be victims, but they're certainly not passive. They are active. I think this is important because that misconception, which I think is often deliberate, has consequences for refugees and the way people who are not refugees think about them. Mm. First of all, it tends to mean that organizations assisting refugees or states responding to refugee flows get angry, that's probably not putting it too strongly, when refugees try and do things for themselves. Mm. And states are actually quite fearful of the idea of refugees arranging things in their own interests. That might be from the very start, when refugees try and enter a country. But then typically, if you look at historical cases like Palestinian refugees, but there are plenty of other examples, 
we see lots of instances, not just of refugees dealing with their own humanitarian situation, but also mobilizing politically within the country of refuge or just as often and perhaps uh, more significantly mobilizing politically around issues in the country that they have left. Mm. Um, And this is really important because refugees are people, they're political actors, they have their own ability to weigh up their situation and what their best course of action is. And when we think about refugees and talk about refugees as needy, passive victims towards whom we have a duty of rescue, we're not just ignoring that that fact, that agency that refugees have, we also tend uh, to, to reduce refugees' ability to act. A good example of this is in current British government policy towards refugees from the Syrian crisis, which mirrors policy towards earlier refugee crises, uh, which is to agree to resettle small numbers of people from the region, but to be extremely reluctant to accept Syrian refugees who have spontaneously made their own way to Britain. A good refugee waits in a refugee camp until the British government deigns to assist him or her. A bad refugee gets out of the refugee camp and tries to take control of his or her own life. Yeah, it's interesting. I'm actually um, I'm personally doing some work on this issue myself, uh, and it's really interesting to hear um, these examples of uh, yeah. You mentioned the Palestinian refugees, and um, just I don't I don't suppose people are very or that aware of refugees organising politically in uh, in the countries where there are, um, yeah. and when they are, I suppose it's quite it's often seen as uh, almost a disloyalty to the host country. Uh, frequently, and I mean, in the Palestinian case, uh, very much so. But there are plenty of other examples of of refugee populations, or um, this goes back before the modern definition of refugee in international law. Um, but there are examples from the Middle East uh, before the Second World War, and indeed before the First World War, for example, as the Russian Empire expanded into the Caucasus Mountains in the 1860s and many Muslims from the Caucasus uh, entered the Ottoman Empire and a bit later as majority Christian provinces of the Ottoman Empire in the Balkans broke away and became independent nation-states, Christian nation-states that expelled their Muslim populations the refugees who came into the remainder of the Ottoman Empire were at the forefront of the development of uh, what became modern Turkish nationalism uh, and the way the Turkish Republic that emerged after the First World War sees itself is very much shaped by the politics of displacement in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. You could say something similar about uh, modern Israel, <coughs> excuse me, as a refugee nation state, 
Uh, and you can also see in cases like Pakistan or West Germany after the uh, after the Second World War, states that have received large numbers of refugees uh, are shaped by that, where the refugees themselves become an important part of uh, the political, assisting the refugees becomes an important part of the political justification for the state's existence. Um, so... Yeah, this is something that's actually been an important theme in modern history, not just in the history of refugees, but in modern history generally, when we look at state formation and nationalism. Oh, that's really interesting, those examples. I suppose that take us back a bit to the next question I had, which was um, about uh, the sort of comparison about refugee um, refugee movements, movements now and before the Second World War, because I've seen... Um, I've seen that you've been discussing um, this claim that we often hear that we are now witnessing the biggest refugee crisis since the Second World War, um, and I think you uh, you might think there's something problematic about this claim. Yes, it's problematic for all sorts of reasons. The two biggest are that we have no idea whether it's true, um, and even if it is true, which it probably isn't, talking about population movements in these terms is unhelpful. I'll explain. First of all, I'm not sure if there's any value to comparing the present with the era of the Second World War. That was a period of global war, global conflict, involving dozens of states. It was a, a, a crisis in a way that is completely incomparable to the tense times we are living in at the moment. Now, by the mid-1940s, with the impact of the Second World War across Europe and Asia in particular, and with some follow-up events uh, like the displacement of ethnic Germans from Central and Eastern Europe at the end of the war, the displacement of Palestinians in 1947, 48, sorry, um, and the uh, partition of British India into the independent states of India and Pakistan. With these events, somewhere between maybe 100 and 200 million people were displaced. Mm. Now, that is a vastly greater number of people to be displaced than the figure that gets bandied around at the moment, which is about 65 million. I mean, it's much bigger number in absolute terms. In relative terms, the difference is even greater because in the late 40s, the global population was only about 2 billion, which is less than a third of what it is today. So proportionately, a much, much bigger proportion of the population was displaced. So is this because um, there's a different definition being used or is it because it's internally displaced or...? Well, that leads me on to, to the next issue. It's, oh. it's partly because of carelessness of people not thinking about about the relative uh, the relative meaning of those figures but as for the actual numbers whether there are 65 million people displaced today and whether that is more than at any time since the late 1940s we don't know uh, first of all the 65 million figure that gets uh, bandied about is an, an estimate 
It includes a lot of double counting of internally displaced persons and of refugees. That's inevitable. It's not. Uh, uh, it's not because of carelessness or deliberate ill will. It's just that if a, someone is displaced within their own country and then flees to another country and then from there makes their way to a third country, which is perfectly normal for a refugee to go through those repeated stages mm. of displacement, then they might be counted at every stage, right? It's also very hard to define an internally displaced person. And of that 65 million figure, only about 21 million are refugees mm. can actually be counted as outside their own country, registered with UNHCR and so on. Internally displaced people, does someone who's sitting on the ruins of their own destroyed home count as displaced? Mm. And it's very hard to count internally displaced people, especially if their own governments don't want them to be counted. And frequently, internally displaced people are displaced by their own governments. Mm. So governments often have an interest in either playing down or playing up the number of internally displaced people they host. All of this makes it difficult to get accurate figures. And in fact, we have literally no idea if more people are displaced today than at any time since the late 40s, because people haven't been collecting accurate figures. Estimates of the number of refugees globally have been gathered with some success for decades since before the Second World War. Um, uh, there were more refugees in the mid-1990s than there are today in absolute terms. And again, there were a billion fewer people in the world then, mm. so fortunately the, the number was even greater. So, so what is that, the, the mid-1990s, you said? Uh, for refugees, right? So refugees. refugees in the world then. So you mean if you isolate, take out refugees from the total number of displaced? Yeah. Right, and okay. for refugees, we have reasonably good statistics, but efforts to gather reliable global data on the number of internally displaced persons are much more recent than that. As I said, it's inherently difficult to gather this information. Mm. Don't want their own the people they themselves have displaced to be counted. But so you the main reason that the sort of driver of the uh, of the of the very high number now, or at least the claim that there's a very high number now, uh, is mainly internally displaced people. It is, and the number of internally displaced people is very hard to count. Yeah, and it's only for the last 20, 25 years or so that anyone has been trying to count it. UNHCR which is the UN Refugee Agency, now takes responsibility globally for assisting internally displaced persons where possible. But it only gradually began to do that after the end of the Cold War. It clarified its position in 1994, 1995 to state, yes, it is part of our mission to assist internally displaced persons. Since the late 90s, an organization called the Inter Internal Displacement Monitoring Center in Geneva has been trying to compile accurate data on the number of IDPs. But that means that we have no idea how many people were internally displaced in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s. And in the 50s and 60s, for example, you have issues like the 
great leap forward, famine, or the cultural revolution in China, which displaced untold millions of people. Mm. Um, so we really, we can't honestly say that more people are displaced today than at any time since the Second World War. Mm. We don't actually know, which leads to the bigger problem, which is why do people use this claim? Yeah. Why does it resonate so much? Because you hear it all over the place. You hear it made by politicians, policymakers, humanitarian actors, and so on. Um, now, I think this is partly out of good intentions. Commentators want to create a sense of urgency. We need to respond to a very real problem, and so we stress what a big problem it is. But that is perhaps dangerous because it often creates not a sense of urgency, but a sense of helplessness mm. in the face of such a vast problem. And sometimes I think playing up those fears may be deliberate uh, and intended to shut down any suggestion that rich countries should accept more refugees, for example. There, is, there are just too many of them, mm. right? And then, and this probably links to the, the question we'll be discussing in a moment, even among well-intentioned commentators like humanitarian practitioners, the effect of talking about this figure, 65 million, is to reduce the complexity of all of those different displacements to a single crisis and to reduce millions of different individual lives to one big but meaningless and unhelpful figure of 65 million. And I think this is, does something which happens often in statistical representations of displacement and also in different ways in visual representations through press photography, for example, uh, and in, in reportage, in writing. It places all of those people into a different category, a distant category, away from the person who is speaking or writing and away from the person who is reading or listening. Uh, refugees, displaced people, they're something else. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, like you say, that it's used by by everyone, really, regardless of the sort of position, in a way, on refugees. And it, probably every single academic paper about refugees starts with this number of 65 million, and, and, and they claim that it's the biggest crisis since the Second World War. Uh, so that's a really interesting perspective. So the other question that I had... Um, that you've been discussing previously um, uh, in other occasions as well, is the claim that the average stay for a refugee in a refugee camp is 17 years. Uh, and so could you um, expand on why you take issue with this um, figure? Yeah, that's actually the first of these kind of killer stats that got me interested um, in exploring what's going on when people use figures like this. Mm. Because like the one that we've heard so much in the last couple of years about 65 million people are displaced, 17 years being the average stay in a refugee camp, this is all over the place. Journalists, think tank staff, academics, NGO media teams, um, Angelina Jolie, people are using this uh, all over the place. Mm. Um, you can Google it in different languages on the internet and you will find it in English, French, Turkish, whatever. Um, but no one ever gives a source for it. Right. And it's actually a kind of, it's the kind of figure that we think, well, how, how do we know that? So with my friend Eleanor Davy, 
from the University of Manchester, we did a little bit of digging to try and work out when this figure began to be used and where it came from. Now, it appears in the 2006 edition of UNHCR's publication, The State of the World's Refugees, which is a kind of handbook that UNHCR publish every, every year or two, just to give an overview of um, uh, the situation of refugees in the world. And that's quite widely read by people in the media and humanitarian practitioners and so on, by policymakers. And that's probably where it began to get um, uh, into public discourse. Um, and that includes the words, it is estimated that the average duration of major refugee situations, protracted or not, has increased from nine years in 1993 to 17 years in 2003. Mm -hmm. That raises a few problems immediately. Um, first, this is 2006, and yet the figure is still bandied about as if it's correct today. Mm -hmm. The source for that is actually from an internal document from 2004, which takes us back, you know, further. Mm. Um, and if you think of that quote again, the average duration of major refugee situations, that doesn't refer to refugee camps no, at all. No. Um, so those are two big problems for this commonplace figure of 17 years being the average length of stay in a refugee camp. The source for that figure isn't talking about the length of stay in a camp. Most refugees don't go into camps, even in protracted refugee situations. And it's getting on for 15 years out of date. Yeah. So do we know anything about what the average stay in the camp actually is? Now, again, this is really very hard to find out because people go into refugee camps and then they leave them. I mean, if you read a recent and very useful book, very painful and difficult book, um, Ben Rawlins's City of Thorns, about the long-established Dadaab refugee camp or other complex of camps in Kenya, mm. many of the people whose lives he um, he explores in that book. Uh, they come from Somalia, they enter the camp at Dadaab, sometimes they go back to Somalia and then come back to the camp, sometimes they go to Nairobi and find work there, but then go back to the camp or don't. Some of them probably end up getting resettled to, uh, to third countries. That camp has been there for over 25 years, and there are people who've been born there and are adults now and have spent mm. most of their lives there. But even in a case like that, many of the refugees in that camp will have been in and out of the camp, they'll have been in other places. Saying that the average length of stay in the camp is... 17 years is probably, uh, well, it, it's probably not true, but it's also very unhelpful. There are some other problems with that figure at the time. It's not clear. I mean, it's got a very vague definition of protracted refugee situation. It doesn't include Palestinians because they're covered by a different UN agency. Mm. Um, and yet there were, there are millions of Palestinians with refugee status 
um, and it's the oldest and largest protracted refugee situation, or is commonly referred to as such. Lots of the biggest refugee crisis in the world at the moment is the Syrian refugee crisis, <clears throat> which is less than six years old. Um, and therefore, because the numbers are so big, the average length of stay, or rather the yeah, average length of the situation, has decreased, although uh, it's quite likely that some of those people are going to be displaced for decades. Um, but the big problem, <clears throat> once again, with this figure is is not so much that it's not accurate, although it isn't, um, it's that it's not helpful, right? It doesn't help any individual refugee to reduce the complexity of displacement problems around the world to a claim like this. The average length of stay in a refugee camp is now 17 years. As we've said, refugees taking their own, you know, trying to take control of their own destinies, will frequently go into camps, leave camps, travel on to third countries, and so on. Most refugees don't go into camps if they can possibly avoid it. Um, assisting refugees, whether they're in camps or not, uh, is not something that this 17-year figure can do. What it does instead just like the 65 million people are now displaced figure, what it does is to reduce the enormous complexity of protracted refugee situations, the complexity, richness, and difficulty of the lives of the people who live through them, to a simplistic figure. Mm. Once again, for me, the function of that figure, even when people are using it out of good intentions, the function of that is to make refugees into another category. I suppose, um, I suppose a reason why people might use it, um, people sort of refugee advocates, would be to encourage governments to resettle more refugees from from camps uh, and to, you know, sort of emphasise um, em emphasise that refugee camps themselves aren't a sort of um, durable solution for refugees or for anyone really um, yeah. but if, if it had that effect then I mean if that's the purpose and I think you're right that probably is one reason why refugee advocates use it mm. um, but it's manifestly not working because this figure has been bandied about I'm sorry I'm repeating this term bandied about this figure has been used far too widely for over a decade now in that decade the number of refugees who are resettled to rich countries has fallen and is likely to fall further. Has it fallen? I thought it, actually, I thought it increased. Has it? It's falling just now anyway with the US suspending its resettlement programs. Um, I mean, you may, you may not know about this. No, no, sorry, it's just because I read about this the other day and um, um, I thought there was like a dip up until the sort of mid 90s, but then uh, uh, an increase because the number of countries who are um, uh, reset offering resettlements have increased. Um, uh, I would need to go and check the figures for that. My yeah. sense is, and I was talking about recent years, there, the last few years, is that the the number has fallen. Um, and particularly, there's likely to be a deep cut in it because the US has suspended its yeah, sure. uh, resettlement uh, program. 
Um, but yeah, um, since I uh, like to question other people's statistical claims, I'm quite happy to have my own. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, but I suppose it's it's only it's still only uh, you know a, 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 a tiny tiny fraction. But it, it's a tiny fraction. Yeah. It's it's no more than about one percent. Um, yeah. And and again, even if there is some positive benefit to using this figure, we need to be careful about the negative effect of this figure and others like it of reducing refugees to this other category of human being, not like us. Mm. Um, so yeah, I mean, I suppose I, what you mentioned about refugees actually moving in and out of camps when you, we talk about these sort of lengthy average figures, it kind of misrepresents the actual refugee sort of yeah. experience. And again, that's a problem with the way a figure that problematic as it is was initially about protracted refugee situations has mistakenly been mapped onto the length of stay in refugee camps. Because protracted refugee situations can last for decades, but people who've been displaced can go through various stages of internal displacement, refuge in a nearby country, uh, time in camps, time working in town, then eventually perhaps resettlement to a third country, rebuild their lives, raise children, send those children to university. Um, the protracted refugee situation that those people are a part of is still persisting mm. and yet their own trajectory as an individual refugee and then family of refugees, their own trajectory is completely different and may have led them to gain another nationality, to establish themselves uh, successfully in a third country. Um, so... Yeah, and, and this figure of 17 years, the average stay in a refugee camp, um, makes it impossible to see that kind of individual life. Um, and I think we need to see that kind of individual life if we are to understand that refugees are people and people that we can talk to and ask about their experiences um, rather than this other category of needy, passive victims who are just waiting there for us to rescue them or not. To find out more about the work of Benjamin Thomas White, please visit our website, talkingmigration.com, where you can also listen to previous episodes. That was all for this time. Thank you for listening.